The technology likely to have the greatest impact on the next few decades has arrived. You can start building completely new concepts for payments that we've never thought of. Move the need for a financial intermediary to transact value. Bitcoin and the blockchain have an amazing future. This is going to transform society. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Crypto Authority Podcast. How's it going? I hope all of you guys are having a fantastic day. So I just sat down and I had a chat with Dan Held and I've been following Dan's work for quite some time now on Medium and one of his articles particularly stood out to me and that is the one that is called Proof of Work is Efficient. So Dan has been involved within the crypto space for years now so let me tell you a bit of how, a bit about what Dan has done to contribute towards the crypto ecosystem from the early days of 2012 up until today. So back in 2013, Dan created an app called Zero Block. And if you haven't heard of Zero Block, it's commonly referred to as Blockfolio, but back in 2013. He's also worked at the very popular blockchain.com, the wallet and block explorer website. And now he worked for a company called Interchange, and Interchange offer digital asset management for crypto-related businesses. But without further ado, this is The Case for Proof of Work with Dan Held. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I've got Dan here with me today, and Dan, I hope I haven't hyped you up too much in that introduction. But honestly, uh, for me, you're a pioneer within the space, and personally, definitely one of the people that I respect most within the space. So from my behalf, it's nothing short of a privilege but to have you on the show. So thank you. Thanks for having me. If uh, this was a video call, you could you could see me uh, blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> So Dan, a few months ago, I read your article, Proof of Work is Efficient for the first time, and you gave me a ton to think about, and I've read it a few times since. And I think that there's no better place to start than the beginning. So you open the article by saying that everything is energy, that money is energy, and you go on to talk about how our economy is not based on money, but on work and energy. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so this is something where a lot of people, I think through, you know, through school, whether that be, um, you know, your primary education or, you know, chatting with your friends and family, I think money has kind of gotten distorted in terms of what it means. Oftentimes it's a negative thing. Um, money is perceived as greed or uh, this, this, sort of, this sort of icky thing that we have to do. But money is actually something quite beautiful in the fact that it is stored energy. Um, when you when you earn money, you earn that through your time and energy. You you spent that time and energy to uh, whether it be stocking shelves or designing a new graphic for a company or coming up with a sales strategy. All of those, the, the all of those events are compensated uh, via money. And so when you have that money, it represents stored time and energy, meaning that you can deploy that money later to access resources. So with that money, you can now buy groceries or you can pay someone to go dig a ditch. It really does, I think, most accurately reflect stored energy. And, you know, I think a lot of people, again, like I said before, have kind of divorced money from its original purpose. And, and it, it becomes such this abstract thing that we forget its core functionality, which is really a preservation uh, of that time and energy. Okay, so one thing that I particularly like about the article is... What you touched on, the evolutionary advancements that we've seen as a, as, a, as a species, 
and um, how they've kind of stemmed from discovering new energy sources. Why don't you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, you know, w- with humans, um, you know, everything, every well, everything in the entire universe is energy and work. Uh, the laws of thermodynamics dictate this. Uh, there is no generation of new energy. There is no destruction of energy. It's merely the translation of energy from one thing into another. And so as society progressed, as humans progressed beyond very primitive animals uh, with a large brain, as they started to harness that brain, they were able to gather and utilize the resources around them and more efficiently utilize that energy. Uh, we've seen that manifested via, um, you know, uh, whether that be growing our own crops or harnessing the work of, of animals um, or, you know, harnessing the work of machines. You know, really, you know, really it's about our harnessing of the energy and resources around us and utilizing that in an efficient manner, which kind of represent how efficient work is becoming over time. Yeah, absolutely. And the examples that you touched on in the article, I think it's worth bringing them up. Uh, When the Neanderthals, for example, they discovered fire, they were given new energy, which is heat and light, and they were able to advance and make advancements with this. And the same came when we discovered the use of coal and then burning it, and then that could create energy. And look where the, uh, look how civilization has advanced ever since. And I think that the purest example or a great example showing that money, everything is energy and that money is energy is a graph that you leave on the article. So just for our listeners, if you haven't checked out Dan's article, Proof of Work is Efficient, I can't recommend it enough. It's a, it's really a piece to behold, but there's one interesting graph on it that shows a correlation between energy consumption and GDP from 1965 up until now. And lo and behold, it's a perfect correlation. You, you can see that they both grow together as one in harmony. If we fast forward to 2008, Satoshi releases a white paper. And with it, he invents a new form of converting electricity into sound money, as per the Austrian School of Economics, if you adhere to that philosophy. What do you usually respond to people that say, perhaps naively, that the energy used to support and to maintain the Bitcoin network is a waste of electricity and ultimately a burden for society? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a great question. And I think ultimately why I wrote this article was to address that comprehensively. Um, I wanted to give people a one-stop shop to counter this, this uh, narrative that Bitcoin's energy will boil the oceans, <laughs> as, as some journalists have said. Um, you know, one, I, I'd like to start from a very simple narrative which is that, I mean, who has the moral authority to dictate who uses what energy and for what? The audacity of someone to go, excuse me, sir, uh, your Bitcoin energy usage is wasteful, even though I paid for it, right? But the simultaneously not coming down on people watching the Kardashians or sending selfies or driving their giant SUVs or putting up Christmas lights you know, is just so mind-numbingly stupid that I want to make sure that that's kind of the simple takeaway if anyone takes away something is, you know, who has the moral authority to play electricity police? It's ridiculous. Let me just interrupt you there, Dan, because when I read your article, I thought of an analogy and I think, well, I think it's quite good, but correct me if it's not. So like you just said, energy consumed is subjective. And if people determine that it's worth it, then it is. 
So the analogy that I thought of kind of is to do with slot machines and gambling. So picture how much energy must be used to power all the gambling and all the slot machines in the world. Is it environmentally friendly and ultimately optimal for society? Absolutely not, but it exists. And no one bats an eyelid because both the people that organize it and the ones that consume it are happy to do so. And I think the same applies for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And it just highlights, you know, that uh, upon, if you isolate one, one thing and look at it, it can always look bad, right? You know, we can isolate energy usage of video games. And man, that looks terrible, right? Like $2 billion a year in the US is spent on Xboxes and PS4s playing, uh, playing video games. And we look at that and we go, man, that, that's wasteful. Um, and I think, you know, it, I, I like that society is trying to think about being efficient. Uh, that's what capitalism is really about. It, <clears throat> sorry, is really about is that being efficient make sure, is making sure that we allocate resources effectively. Um, but with electricity usage, we already have that mechanism and it's the market mechanism. The market mechanism is essentially saying, if you want to use this, this energy, you have to pay for it. And, and we do, and Bitcoin miners do pay for it. So, you know, I, I think the moral, the moral superiority thing of determining what is a moral use of electricity is ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of the big takeaway I want to leave people with is, is that, of course, if you want to analyze Bitcoin's energy usage, you have to look at it relative to everything else. If you don't, then it's kind of being morally dishonest. So, you know, starting there and then and then what's funny is that, you know, people look at Bitcoin's energy usage. And and like I mentioned before, it's not really useful until you look at it. You know, if you look at it in isolation, it doesn't tell you much unless you look at it in, ter- in terms of a relative sense. And man, if you look at the amount of energy used by governments. Uh, so imagine a fiat currency like the US dollar, the the infrastructure to support that. I mean, we're talking governments and militaries and in and, and courts, you know, court systems have to, to determine the legality of certain transactions that have occurred. Uh, then you've got the even the even the print money takes an enormous amount of energy. And think of all the hands that are required to pick up and, and move money and the, the food that they need to eat and all of the all of the ATMs and in, in retail bank locations, and the air conditioning and heating required, and all the people made it goes on and on and on, you know. And and so I, I made some rough approximations uh, as to what the energy usage looks like, and, and Bitcoin is obviously a, a much smaller, much much smaller amount um, as it as it sort of automates and 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 really removes the the trust needed in some of these systems. Um, and so I, I think something important as well is that a lot of people go, well, okay, that, that's fine. I agree with you that Bitcoin's energy usage ultimately does a good thing it, and it's more efficient than existing systems, but can we make it even more efficient, right? And that's what the proof of stake crowd likes to, likes to say. Um, you know, they don't disagree that it does something useful and that it's more efficient than existing systems, but how, do we, how, do, how can we say that the first round of something is the most efficient, right? A lot of people look at, MySpace and Facebook, and they're like, well, certainly the first one isn't the right one. Um, and, and, you know, they're using mental models that I think are good mental models for some products, but not necessarily applicable to, to money networks. And so what's beautiful about Bitcoin's proof of work is that no one in real life, no one in the real world or the physical world would ever throw shade at you for building a wall or building 
a vault around things that you care about. In fact, it's, it's highly regarded as the proper thing to do. In the digital world, how do we do that? Well, Bitcoin's proof of work essentially enables us to build digital walls around things that we want to protect and care about. And we're building a digital wall around the ledger. And that's really, really important because ultimately we store our money, which is energy and time in that ledger, and the preservation of it is really, really paramount. And that's what makes this all so beautiful. And some people going, oh, well, can't we make, can't we use less energy to protect it? Well, what's beautiful about Bitcoin's energy usage is that the walls are transparent in terms of it's a transparent cost. We know exactly how much cost was put into building the wall. And the only way to dismantle the wall is using the equivalent amount of cost. And that's really, really beautiful because we're not we're not relying on doing some tricks to build a wall that looks like it's expensive, but actually there's a way you can undermine it. Um, Bitcoin is beautiful in its raw simplicity. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that we should view the cost that it or the cost of mining as a perk and not a bug. It it's what makes Bitcoin immutable. And this actually brings me on to my next point quite well. Um, you also called Bitcoin a super commodity that is immutable. And I definitely agree. No other commodity can be stored as securely and as cheaply. No, none of them can compete with Bitcoin's transportability. And no commodity has such a transparent and known maximum supply like BTC. But as you say in your article, it is only a super commodity that is immutable if it is costly to produce. Why? Yeah, so that, that goes down a really fun path of talking about commodities um, where, you know, we look at aluminum and we take bauxite, which is the raw ore, and then we use energy. In fact, energy is a very, or electricity is a very large uh, portion of the cost of smelting aluminum, which takes that raw bauxite ore and converts it into something more usable, which is aluminum. <clears throat> we see the same function with alcohol. We take grains and fruits and we, we ferment them, and it's a one-way function. So it's, it's not a reversible process. It's a one-way function into alcohol, which is ultimately more usable, storable, and durable. And so Bitcoin is, is merely a manifestation of the same process. It's a one-way function of energy into digital gold, uh, which is a really, really cool thing because, you know, we, we see all these analogies as well. Uh, you know, back in the day where uh, people were concerned about aluminum uh, using a lot of energy, but that's it's a feature because it's taking something less usable and through energy, inputting energy, it makes it more usable and tra transportable. In fact, the prime minister of Iceland said, you know, we've got all these energy sources kind of trapped in Iceland. And what we do is we take bauxite ore use that energy to convert it into aluminum. So in effect, we're exporting energy in the form of aluminum. And Bitcoin does the same thing. It exports energy in the form of something super transferable, which is Bitcoin. And to kind of summarize all that together, Bitcoin is a super commodity as it's minted from the fundamental part of the entire universe, which is energy. So Satoshi created something in Bitcoin that was really, really beautiful called unforgeable costliness. And what that means is that like every other commodity, marginal revenue equals marginal cost. So as gold becomes more and more valuable, uh, miners will dig deeper and deeper into the earth to go find it. 
all the sort of easy gold that would be found just kind of laying around on the ground has largely been found already, already because the miners are financially incentivized to find gold that is, yeah, to find gold in the, in the most cheap form possible because they make the most money. So Satoshi needed to mimic this process of as demand for gold increases, um, you know, the, the cost to dig it out becomes increasingly hard as well. And that's where Satoshi built something really, really brilliant called the difficulty adjustment, where as more and more people start to mine Bitcoin, more Bitcoin is not produced. But the, but the difficulty in which to produce it becomes harder. So what that means is that essentially miners aren't getting any free Bitcoin. Like miners are not getting a free lunch here. They have to work for it and they're working for it alongside every other miner. And at the end of the day, the amount of money that it costs to produce a Bitcoin is basically equivalent to buying one. And miners make a very small spread in between. And so the unfordable costliness is important because, as Mark Twain says, to make a man or woman covet a thing, all you have to do is make it hard to obtain. And if there was any way to have a free lunch, that would undermine the fairness or the proof that work generated this coin. And so Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment makes sure that as Bitcoin's price increases, um, in effect, it becomes more and more hard to mine the coin and eventually marginal cost equals marginal revenue. So one of the main issues amongst contrarians of the proof of work system is its environmental burden. But thankfully, within the last few years, we've started to opt to use more renewable sources of energy. There are solar mining fields going up, and then in Iceland, they use hydroelectric power. And generally, mining Bitcoin is becoming more eco-friendly and more sustainable as time goes by. Do you think that the future of Bitcoin mining is dependent on renewable energies? And do you think that is the way that we will go? Bitcoin does something really, really magnificent where it unlocks disparate and stranded energy sources. So, for example, there's a ton and ton of energy in Iceland and Alaska and all these areas that are very far away from very uh, dense urban areas that would want to consume or dense industrial areas that would consume a lot of this energy. So Bitcoin is essentially incentivizing the hunt for the cheapest electricity across the world. So Bitcoin miners are scouring all over the world looking for the cheapest energy sources. And so what that does is it typically means that Bitcoin starts to accumulate uh, mining equipment around renewable energy sources that are stranded or, or are not using all of their capacity, which is pretty common. And, and we've seen a big movement towards hydroelectric dams. And a lot of these were built. What's kind of funny is that a lot of these were, were built for smelting aluminum. And Bitcoin is, is taking these old assets that have been already already been built, uh, reinvigorating them by, by being, being able to utilize their energy output. And then also, you know, looking at all different types of renewable energy sources across the world. And if they're trapped or stranded or not being efficiently utilized, you can export that energy via Bitcoin. And CoinShares had a really great analysis where I think they, and again, this is all very hard to quantify as a lot of this information isn't publicly available I think CoinShares did a great job with their analysis where they estimated that around 78% of Bitcoin is, is through renewable energy, energy wow. sources, which is really, really cool. They did a comprehensive analysis. Um, 
And, and so I, I won't be able to do it justice by digging in too deep, but they're really brilliant guys over there and they spent a lot of time uh, analyzing and researching this. So, you know, until I see other data to other, until I see data that, that says otherwise, I typically go with that figure. You've given me so much to go with already. That 78%, I'm going to use that all the time now because it's a great argument. 70% of all Bitcoin mining sources from renewable energy. Right. And a lot, of, a lot of that too was in China because uh, China overbuilt their infrastructure in anticipation of higher growth. So they have a lot of stranded energy that's not being used. So that's why you see Bitcoin miners going to China is a lot of the energy over there is much cheaper because... China built out their infrastructure too large, too fast, and they're not able to really use anything with that energy. Dave, you're you're providing me. Um, Dave, sorry, God, I'm my my boss is called Dave. My boss is called Dave, and I've been speaking to him all day. So sorry, Dan. <laughs> Dan, you're providing me with great segues there when you mentioned China because earlier on today I was reading an article by David Gerard, and I'm not sure if you know who he is, but he's generally quite anti-Bitcoin and he's released an anti-Bitcoin and anti-crypto book. And I, I'm actually looking to have him on the podcast soon. But he proposes that proof of work is, it's hard to decentralize. And to my understanding thus far, it is. I may be wrong here, but the most decentralized proof of work network is Bitcoin. And as we've seen so far, these Chinese mining pools like Bitmain, they've monopolized the creation of BTC. Do you view this as a problem for proof of work? Uh, yeah, well, first we need to identify if that's actually happening or not. Um, while China does have a lot of cheap energy resources, a lot of those are only available to Chinese natives, which excludes a lot of uh, bigger companies that might want to come in and build out mining infrastructure. So we don't know what the percentage of Bitcoin miners are in China. Um, what we do know is we can look at mining pools and look at the sort of allocation between those mining pools. and what we've seen is a migration that shows more and more decentralization over time. If you look at the breakdown of current mining pools, it's very, very distributed in terms of geo and mining pool uh, percentage allocation in terms of, of hash rate. Um, even if there's concentration of hash rate within a mining pool that gets to quote unquote dangerous levels of, you know, let's say 50, 51%, the miners are pooling their resources together in order to share the block reward. I mean, that's why they that's why they create mining pools. As soon as the mining pool acts maliciously, it's going to financially hurt every single miner who signed up to that pool, and they're likely going to want to switch to another pool so they don't have this perception that they might be hurting the network. You know, Bitcoin's proof of work is essentially going to the miners and saying, hey, would you rather earn the money or burn the money? And so... It's the financial skin in the game vote that these miners have made, the decision that they've made to buy these ASICs and to pre-allocate money in terms of buying energy sources that can that they can harness at at high high amounts and, and cheaper costs. So they would essentially, if they want to engage in malicious behavior, they would essentially have to burn the money. And, and that's why ASICs are ultimately a good thing, is if that ASIC could be used for anything else, then the incentive to attack Bitcoin would be much much more aligned with the attack vector. Uh, but unfortunately, the only way to attack Bitcoin would be to be willing to burn billions of dollars. And in the future, yeah. as the network gets larger and larger, let's say Bitcoin hits a multi-trillion market cap or tens of trillions, the cost to attack Bitcoin, then you would have to be willing to burn 100 to 200 billion, which is only available to the biggest states in the world, probably the United States 
And again, the reward is to keep the money. <laughs> you can either burn the money or you can keep the money. And ultimately, if the miner, if a nation state like that wanted to attack Bitcoin and spend $100 billion to do so and decided to burn that money instead of keeping it, Bitcoin could always switch their proof of work because we've all stored our energy and time in terms of the Bitcoin ledger, or aka UTXOs. So we can all collectively say fuck you and then switch over to a new proof of work uh, mining mechanism. Yeah. I may be putting words into your mouth here, but what I understood from that was that in the long term, you believe that the creation of BTC will become more decentralized in the future, judging by what's happened in the past. Yeah, we've seen that empirically. So uh, if you look at the mining pool distribution charts or percentage, like the pie chart that shows percentage allocation, it's grown more and more distributed over time. So we, we have evidence that that has existed in the past. Um, as it becomes more and more commoditized as bigger and bigger firms come in uh, to build mining equipment, I don't see why that wouldn't continue the trend. Um, again, even if the trend goes the other way and things become more concentrated, people have a financial incentive incentive to play nice and they can only do one thing with those ASICs. So if they choose to be act bad, they want to burn tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. And I guess that kind of ties into the capitalistic governance system that Bitcoin boasts, that the money you risk is the votes that you gain. Precisely. Yes. Cool. So Dan, what are your thoughts of blockchain, not Bitcoin, and those blockchains that lack a native currency like BTC is to the Bitcoin network? Yeah, so I think you know distributed ledger tech from the 1990s is cool, but uh, I, I don't think it's a <laughs> I don't think it's a a, a cure all for any sort of business problem that you have. Um, I think there's some really simple ways that people can think about this from a non technical perspective, which is that if blockchains are good at some things, they must be bad at other things. And when you ask someone who says you know blockchain not Bitcoin, 99.9 percent of the time, if you ask them, what are you trading off? Um, what are you trading off to get the advantages of blockchain tech? 99% of the time, they will not be able to answer that question, which means they fundamentally don't understand what they're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think that blockchain has become a shelling point for all tech innovation. It makes total sense too, because if you're at a big company and you're talking to a bunch of old guys who barely know anything about tech and you are part of the innovation branch of the company, well, what's the one word you, you can say that's going to get you the resources that you need? Blockchain. And if you're at a small startup <laughs> and you need VC money and the space is hot and, and you know, what's the one word you need to say? Blockchain. So people have been financially incentivized to say the word. It's largely lost any sort of meaning. I also think it's really disingenuous when people go, oh, well, you know, Satoshi just shit out Bitcoin as the first application on blockchain tech. And I'm like, what if he purpose-built blockchain tech for Bitcoin? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really dishonest and, and disingenuous to go, oh, Satoshi didn't know what he was doing. He just, that was just the first thing he could think of. That out, Bitcoin is just a random crappy version one app. I, I think that's just really, really poor take on it to say that like, oh, that's just the first version. That's just, a, oh, it's a meaningless first version. That The real utility is this other tech. No, he, he purposely built blockchain tech to build Bitcoin. It's not the other way around. Okay, so just before we go into the quickfire Q&A section, 
I want to touch on something that you mentioned in your article and something that was promoted by the great minds of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, and that is the idea of the energy dollar. To the best of my understanding, it is, it's a currency that is pegged to the amount of electricity used in the economy at the time. Yeah, what's, what's beautiful, as we saw earlier with uh, energy usage and GDP, is that it's very much correlated. Um, and there's, it's pretty hard to manipulate that as well as, as you wouldn't want to generate energy and just waste it. Uh, you'd want to use it. So, you know, energy usage very much correlates with the growth of the economy. And in the early 20th, earliest, uh, sorry, the early 20th century, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and, and uh, other American industrialists really wanted to kind of move to a, a new commodities, you know, standard, kind of like the gold standard, but backed by energy which is really fascinating. Um, and the reasons why was that one, it's the unforgeable costliness. You can only generate electricity by using energy or using some other energy and converting that into electricity. So the unforgeable costliness is a big component. Um, it's, it's somewhat, you know, it's very standard uh, to measure electricity can be, you know, it's verifiable. It's divisible. Um, you know, some of the problems though that it had was transferable or transferability and uh, durability. I think those would be like the two negatives for using electricity as money. Uh, and really Bitcoin represents the best manifestation of energy money because it's a one-way function from electricity into digital gold. And it actually reflects very accurately the amount of electricity required to create it. Um, so it really does represent almost a literal stored energy. Yeah. It's it's a really interesting project, and after you've uh, you've just enlightened me a bit there, I think after this call, I'm going to go and do a bit of reading about that. So, are you good to go into the quickfire Q and A section just to round off? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, awesome. So, Dan, I read that you worked at Uber, and as a management graduate, I find Uber fascinating. It's 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 a revolutionary company. So, in short, what did you do there, and did you enjoy your time there? I really enjoyed Uber. Uh, coming from the early crypto space and transitioning to Uber, I wanted to find a big company that kind of championed libertarian ideas and and really meritocracy, where you 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 earned what you what you worked for. And Uber largely reflected that. You know, if you look at Uber's legal status in most countries, it was illegal in every single city it launched in. The culture was very much "don't ask for permission, beg for forgiveness," and that's how the world works. And I really, really liked working with the people at Uber. They were sharp, intelligent, um, not very social justice warrior types. They were more like, hey, what do we have to do to get this done? Um, they very much prided themselves in the idea that, look, we're not selling you ads or wasting your time on Facebook or, or something like that. We're here to move you. We're here to move real things. We're moving food and people. And in the future, we'll move other payloads across a variety of different different platforms like flying cars or, or trains or planes or everything else. Um, we're a core in infrastructure component of the world. <clears throat> and so, yeah, very much enjoyed my time there. I spent time on writer growth, which was led by Andrew Chen. He's now a GP at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, on writer growth, uh, my role was app store optimization. So that team did onboarding engagement virality, and then app store optimization was the, the team that I led, which was essentially making sure that all of Uber's products across the Play and App Store were adequately marketed and our relationship with the app stores were well maintained um, and that 
you know, sort of an SEO component where people would query different things in different languages and make sure that Uber shows up highly for those search results. Uh, so that was my first role at Uber. Later down the road, I joined the uh, global data team or the uh, intelligence team, where uh, essentially I helped Uber color in the uh, the landscape around them. Fascinating. Well, I guess I, uh, I guess I owe you a big thanks for for making my cost of travel almost half of what it was before. So, thank you. <laughs> well, it was me and about twenty thousand other Uber employees. So, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of other people to thank too. Well, as Tesco says, every little helps. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's applicable. What is your most controversial thought regarding crypto? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, we, you know, let's see. Well, I don't know. I mean, being a Bitcoiner is, is somewhat controversial. Um, Absolutely. Especially in Silicon Valley, which is kind of funny because Silicon Valley really isn't about being open-minded. Silicon Valley is the most open place in the world not to speak your mind. Um, and that's around a wide variety of different topics. And th- this is coming from a guy who was early in crypto in 2012, 2013. Uh, I mean, when I was in San Francisco, only 15 of us were at the Bitcoin meetup in January 2013. You know, no VCs were really interested at the time. Um, and then, you know, for fun, I fly drones and I plan on getting myself cryo cryo preserved when I die. So I'm I'm a pretty open sort of person. <laughs> I'm, I'm into some weird stuff. Um, yeah, and, and Silicon Valley really isn't about, it really isn't about new things. It's just about what's popular. Okay. So it's funny you mentioned that. I asked one of my good friends, Pierce Kicks, who writes on Medium and he's absolutely phenomenal and he's just started. So for all our listeners, go check him out. And I know he's a big fan of yours, Dan. He, he was the one who introduced me to your article. Oh, cool. Proof of work is efficient. And I asked him, what should I ask? And firstly, he said he wanted to thank you for all your contributions towards the space. And then he was going to ask, what do you do when you're not involving yourself with Bitcoin and crypto, but you've just confessed that you have a, a passion for drones? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's more in the cinematic sense. So I'm, I'm not the drone racing type, but I think that's really cool. It's just not, not what I do. Uh, in the cinematic sense, you know, I started flying drones in 2014. And what's really cool about it is that you capture moments and you capture perspectives that no one has ever seen before. You know, no camera has ever been in that exact spot in the sky before to capture the moment that you're seeing. And for me, I, I found that fascinating. I, I've always loved movies and TV shows. And so it was really fun to kind of get in the weeds of how do I craft a really compelling visual story? And was it was it a nice distraction from, you know, Uber and, and crypto. It's It's a good sort of hobby to have. So yeah, that, that's kind of what I do for fun. Obviously, I like all the sort of social things in San Francisco. So, you know, going out with my buddies and the, the restaurant and bar scene is really nice out here. So there's a lot of really cool places for foodies and the brunch scene is, is very, very fun. I can agree with that. I myself am a foodie and I had the benefit of visiting San Fran in the summer. And yeah, I can, uh, I can vouch that it's a very foodie friendly environment. So this is a hard one. I may be putting you on the spot a bit here, but who is the most interesting person you've met in crypto? So let's, let's re, we'll, I'll come back to this question. Um, okay. I actually came up with a good answer for what's your most controversial opinion. My, I, I guess you could say the most controversial thing that I believe is that deflation is good. And that's going to, you know, really shock some people because a lot of people 
they hear the word deflation and their minds just explode. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe anyone would advocate for deflation. You have deflationary spirals. Oh my God. <laughs> oh no, it's going to end the world. Um, and we, and, and so an article that's going to come out later this year, uh, you know, really want to cover some of the, the misconceptions around deflation. Um, and so I, I think largely we've been scared to think that deflation is a bad thing by the, by the central banks. And that's why they've constantly pushed us with, with inflation. And it, you know, I think that's a controversial opinion because most people would be horrified to hear that someone would advocate for deflation. I mean, what could be worse than that? Um, what's funny is that we all, <laughs> we all have something in our hands today that is testament to that being false. Your mobile cell phone. That the cost of your cell phone drops year over year and the features become better and better. But despite that, you don't withhold buying something. You go ahead and buy it because you need to use it. But proponents of or people that believe that deflation is bad would say, no, consumers will never buy something because the price keeps dropping. And we find that to be uh, patently false as as we all own TVs and we own computers and we own cell phones that continually get better and better and cheaper. Okay, so and then my second question was, who is the most interesting or captivating person you've met within crypto? You know, I think there's been a, there's been ebbs and flows of people that I found very interesting. Um, I would say like a timeless example would be Nick Zabo. I think his his theories on on the theories of money and how money evolved and and unforgeable costiness and Bitcoin were were kind of a core foundational component of Bitcoin, which Satoshi actually says that uh, in the Bitcoin talk forums, he says Bitcoin is from B money and, and Bitgold. And so I, I think Nick Zabo is, a, I think, one of the core foundational people of crypto. And I find I, as I read his work, it continually fascinates me how advanced and how far thinking he was. And to see that, you know, for him to see this space evolve as far as it did is probably really, really cool. I would say people that I find really interesting recently, you know, I've been in the space for eight years. So the old, the old thought leaders have kind of mostly faded away and there's a new wave of thought leaders. Um, so like I would say Arjun Balaji, um, Murad, yeah, uh, these guys on Twitter. Um, and then Vijay uh, Boparty. I, I think that's how I, you pronounce his last name. Those guys are all really sharp they, I think, represent the new energy and the new wave of, of and I'd say Nick Carter as well. Um, all of it, and I'm, I'm missing a few here, but we don't have, we don't have enough time for me to go through the people I follow on Twitter. Um, I'd say those four are like really exceptional in terms of thought leaders, in terms of the content that they've put out and how they think about the space. And I, I think it's, I, I don't think there's been a better time for crypto content than now. Uh, we've got really brilliant people looking at it. I, you know, back in the day, it was just a bunch of people on Reddit and Bitcoin talk. So I think it's really evolved to another stage of content and I couldn't be more excited. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And Murad, Arjun and Vijay are all phenomenal contributors towards the space. But if it makes you feel any better, and I don't want to be kissing your ass too much here, Dan, but I'd put you in the same category as them. <laughs> well, the, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. That, that means a lot to me. <laughs> so in all your years of Bitcoin and crypto, what has been your favorite event or meetup? I'm, I'm guessing it may be one of the, like, the early ones back in the day. Yeah. You know, 
you know, that, that's a, that's a really great question. These are, these are phenomenal questions, by the way. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, I would say December, 2013 at the, um, oh, yeah, inside Bitcoin's conference in Las Vegas. Uh, I would say that moment in the May, 2013, uh, San Jose Bitcoin conference. Um, and, and I'll unpack that here. So the, the May 2013 San Jose Bitcoin conference, that was the first time where I saw more than more than like 50 or 100 Bitcoiners together. So that was really cool. Um, you know, it was like we had been going to these, you could call them like church events in a way, these meetups. And you you had a couple cheap beers and, you know, it's kind of just people talking about how much they like Bitcoin. And then we went to this conference and I was like, oh, man, we've got the Winklevi twins on stage. Like, you know, things are happening. <laughs> Is that what people call them? It's plural, Winklevi. Yeah, the Winklevi. Yeah, you, you, you group them together. <laughs> so like octopus and octopi. I like that. I I've always referred to them as Winklevosses, like the Winklevoss brothers. But no, I'm gonna I'm gonna take great pleasure in saying Winklevi. It's the Winklevi twins. You know, they I really admire them for putting their skin in the game in terms of their brand into the crypto space. Um, there weren't a lot of people really willing to put their name to Bitcoin. And they were they were very much boldly jumped in and did it, and they also have hodled this entire time, and they think that Bitcoin is gold 2.0. I I couldn't respect them more. I, I think they're really brilliant, and and I think the contributions that they made to this space, especially in the early days, were were huge. So, you know, I think the May, May 2013 uh, San Jose Bitcoin conference is really key in terms of like it felt like a movement then, a, a bigger movement than just a small group of us and. You can look back on, uh, there's a YouTube video of, of someone walking through the booths and like going one to each booth. And so you can see what companies survived. Uh, at that time, Brian Armstrong was manning their booth <laughs> <laughs> and it's just him in the booth and they're giving out like, you know, five free dollars worth of Bitcoin, which I think was like a whole Bitcoin. Uh, wait, no, in May, no, in May, it was a lot more. They're giving away 0.1 Bitcoin. Um but uh, yeah, you've got Brian manning the booth, and I think they had printed out Coinbase's sign on like an eight and a half by eleven, and then like taped it to the booth. So <laughs> <laughs> brilliant! It was it was pretty cool to see that. And then you know the big boom came later that year, in uh, like the the winter of twenty eight uh, twenty thirteen. So the uh, Inside Bitcoin's Las Vegas conference that was really cool because there was the first supper club dinner. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, I'm not. No, I know uh, Pierre Richard's trying to do something similar in New York, I think. But if I'm correct, I'm not sure, though. Tell me about it. Yeah, and maybe I shouldn't say too much, but uh, essentially it's a dinner hosted by uh, a few individuals. And this became a recurring dinner at every conference. Um, and it was a, a collection of all the leaders in the space. So I uh, back in that day, I built a product called Zero Block, which was like the Blockfolio equivalent in terms of functionality and popularity back in 2013. Um, so I got invited to this dinner, and and you know we're in the middle of a bull market, and I'm meeting all these other people that are, you know, CEOs and and founders of you know there's like a bunch of different people there that are essentially the who's who, and I think that was a pretty thrilling moment as well, where I realized my product that I had built, you know, had had gotten to that level of popularity, which was really fun. Now, now I don't want to get too on too high in my supply here. You know, this was 2013 crypto where <laughs> it's like saying you're the tallest midget. It's not really uh, it's not, <laughs> to have a, to have a top mobile app at that time was 
compared to everything else in the world, very, very small. So, uh, but you know, I was proud of what I built and I was, it was exciting to kind of be validated that it, it was such a popular tool that I, I walked into this room and a lot of people would pull up their phone and, and go, Hey, I have it on my phone as kind of a, uh, as a testament or like a, a, a badge of honor. And so that was really cool for me as a, as a product person building something to where I got to see someone else, um, you know, show, show delight and enjoy it. And these were, these were thought leaders in the space. Awesome. So it's not a problem whatsoever because everything you say is brilliant, but we've done a really bad job at keeping this a quick fire Q and a, <laughs> but just, um, j- just to round it off now, the last question and, I don't like to focus on price so much because I think Bitcoin is so much greater than that. It's the price is just a very small part of it. But in 365 days time, will the market cap of the cryptocurrency market be above what it is today? I think it's roughly $115 billion. Yeah. So I, I've seen a couple of these cycles and, and calling top or bottom is really tough. I, I think based on like, you know, I can talk a little bit more intelligently on Bitcoin because I've looked at that the longest and we have the most yeah. data on it and the most focus on it and the most analysis on it and certainly the most interest. So, you know, we've got a having event coming up in 2020 and typically we see that kind of marking the bottom of the bear or like the bottom of the bear happens six months or eight months before, you know, I, I don't think history repeats itself. I think it rhymes. Um, and it makes sense to if the supply of Bitcoin being sold on the market drops in half, then obviously we're going to see less selling pressure. And if buying pressure remains the same, then prices move up. So, and then people might start buying ahead of time in, in anticipation of that, of that move. Uh, so, you know, in 365 days, my, my best guess would be that we're higher. Uh, again, I don't really like making these predictions because the markets are so, so tough to time. Um, hence why I recommend hodling. And I think hodling is a core life philosophy. You should be convicted in your trade and you should be willing to hold it for more than a year. Um, you know, you're not going to be a pro level hedge fund sort of type. You're, you're typically just a retail investor with very limited information. So when you make a trade, be confident in it, be bold in it, be bold in, in holding it and, and be, be willing to go through the booms and busts. So for me, I, I think Bitcoin is going to hit something uh, to where it'll be sort of testament to its durability, uh, which will be in the next five years hitting, hitting another top of a bull run. And when that happens, I think that's going to shake the world where people go, whoa, it didn't die those other times and it's here. And we've got everyone from X investment bank to Y hedge fund talking about it. And I think, you know, that's what my product is working on. Uh, what I'm working on with my product and, and what others are doing in the space is we're building out that institutional infrastructure for the big money to come in. Uh, largely these, these bubbles or these, these market cycles have been influenced by retail traders and we're on, we're on the verge of something really, really big. Uh, essentially it's kind of like a, a play where the stage has been set, the a- actresses and actors are in place, the orchestra's in the pit and everything just, just, we just need a little moment where the conductor starts, starts everything. And so I don't know when that moment's going to be, but I think it's going to be in the next five years. And I'm really excited to see it happen. Wise words. And next time I, I feel bearish with Bitcoin, I'll give you a call because you've done a good job at making me feel positive about Bitcoin's future. Yeah, I've got a, uh, I've got a tweet at the bottom of the last bear market that says HODL. So I've, 
I've been there before. I don't, I don't think we're at the bottom yet, but I'll be hodling. Brilliant. Okay, Dan. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been amazing. Where can, um, where can our listeners find out more about you and read some of your work? Yeah, so you can go to danheld.com to read some of my blog posts. Um, some of those have been ported over from my Medium um, articles. And so, yeah, you can either go to Medium or danheld.com. And if you want a little bit kind of quicker, more, more digestible um, thoughts from me, follow me on Twitter at danheld. So, yeah, pretty much Dan Held anywhere you go. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Dan, once again, thank you so much. You've been amazing. Thanks for having me.